Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. I'm Carl Mack and this is Combat Chronicles. And thanks to a fairly prominent combat sports media member today, I might have some new listeners. So for those that are regulars, apologies for the spiel. For those that are new, talk about everything here. Boxing, MMA, kickboxing, Muay Thai as well. But today's episode is all about boxing because this is the week of boxing. For those that aren't subscribed to the Combat Chronicles Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Combat Chronicles, you'll not be aware how accurate my prediction for now you're in a way versus Stephen Fulton really was. Oh, nice big hand lands, and down goes Stephen Fulton in round eight. That was textbook. He jabbed down in the stomach. We said this earlier. He jabbed down in the stomach to try and come over the top with that right hand. He's doing it, doing it multiple times in this fight. Two minutes left in the round. Can Inouye get the stoppage here in round eight and become a four-division world champion? He is pouring it on. Fulton doing his best to fight back. The referee steps in, and it is over. Naoya Inouye is now the unified junior featherweight champion of the world. Excuse me, ma'am. That's super bantamweight to you. Eighth round. Stoppage for now, you know, looked like he was about to emphatically spark Stephen Fulton out when the referee jumped in, but did catch him with a mean left hook as he dropped him. Let's just talk about how I saw the fight going into it. Over on the Patreon, did the preview podcast uh, this past Sunday, so I give everyone a couple of days to consume it and uh, also just get excited for the fight, which I like to do, get everyone pumped up and you know, get excited for the belt. But I did have my reservations about the fight. I had my reservations about Stephen Fulton. I was a little bit... Uh, I was not a fence-sitter in terms of how I saw the fight. And I'll tell you where I went uh, right. And where I went wrong was basically the round prediction. I thought two or three rounds. It was wrapped up within two or three rounds, essentially. I was wrong about the round prediction. That's not really what analysis is, though, based on the... Uh, you don't really base it on whether I get it right. You know, If you pick a knockout, a decision, okay, that's something. But in terms of actually... Uh, jotting down the X's and O's of how the bat will play out, that's what's important. You know, the actual result, it's not that great. I mean, you, you could get it perfect, but it could be a robbery decision. No one's going to say your analysis was wrong. But we'll get to that in a minute anyway, in terms of how the X's and O's and the ebb and flow played out in the belt. But I was not that excited for this as a contest. Based on my own opinions of Stephen Fulton, the tape study, etc., did not see this elite level operator people were talking about. I was seeing people picking him to win by decision. I mean, 
Uh, yeah, I guess if he was going to win it, that was how. I did actually mark out paths to victory for him, but they all come with caveats. Um, the best route for Stephen Fulton would have been to rough up Inouye on the inside. We'll look at that in a second. Um, didn't, that didn't even work. But the big problem was actually filling that space and getting to Inouye. And didn't really, based on the footage you've seen of Fulton and in the fights, which I detailed in that Patreon podcast, see a sustainable route to get in there without taking some heavy artillery back. Fulton covers distance with long steps behind wide punches. Not great against a shorter, sharper, faster, accurate counter-puncher like Inouye. And he doesn't punch. So the way to beat Inouye is similar, even though not uh, that similar in terms of their styles. And I hate to use this as a comparison because new listeners are going to go, oh, he's just picked him because he's, uh, he's Asian. But it's not the case. But much like how Juan Manuel Marquez dealt with Manny Pacquiao, you've got to be able to punch with him. You've got to be able to have continued uh, success in exchanges. If you just cover up and shell up and wait to go, then he's going to beat you when he's leading and he's going to beat you on the counter as well. You've got to be able to hold it in there with him. Now, you're going to say, well, that's easier said than done. Yes, it is. That's why it will take a special calibre of fighter to beat Nalia Inoue, much as it took special fighters to beat Manny Pacquiao in his prime. Eric Morales, uh, Juan Manuel Marquez, and of course Floyd Mayweather. I'm not counting Tim Bradley, even though Bradley done some good things and didn't actually win that fight. Um, but you see what I mean. It takes special fighters to beat special fighters. And I did not see that. With Stephen Fulton, I did not think he was a special fighter. I did not consider him an elite-level calibre fighter. And it's played out like that in the fight. People will say, but he had two bouts. As I said on that other podcast, I broke down why it was somewhat of a hollow achievement. The current dearth of talent in the Super Bantamweight division. The fact that one of them bouts was ostensibly vacant, even though it wasn't, but it had been very, very recently. The calibre of opposition that Fulton beat to win those two bouts and the skills he had displayed in those two bouts. He's not bad. He's not bad. But he was not on Inouye's level. My stylistic breakdown of how they matched up with each other was that Inouye would be able to jab with Fulton, that Inouye would know, have no issues landing a cross-counter with Fulton, and that he'd probably use that right hand to then move Fulton into his left hand. Um, and essentially, Inouye did end up doing anything he wanted in this bout. He was able to jab with him, being a shorter guy, utilise an up jab. He constantly used the uh, straight body jab as well, which uh, caused havoc for Fulton throughout the fight. He was then bringing uh, punches behind that. There's one sequence, can't remember what round it was in, but just to break it down. Anyway, baited the right hand with the body jab, so drew out uh, Fulton's own lead right, and then hooked off the jab, level change. So he's jabbed to the body, drew out the right hand, and then gone with the hook off the jab, upstairs over the right hand that's coming in this is the thing about Inouye that I spoke about in the preview he's very good at using his foot speed and hand speed to get you into situations that you are unable to respond to in a quick amount of time so Inouye he knew that even with that right hand coming towards him he'd be able to get the hook over the top and lo and behold if you find that sequence you will see exactly how it worked didn't come off perfectly because I think Inouye would have liked to drop Fulton with that shot, but it did clip him on the top of the head. It just shows what he's able to do with his pure athleticism, his timing, his boxing nails, his boxing brain, etc., etc. 
Fulton was trying to box in a way early and get him to uh, follow him around the ring and just try and outbox him essentially with a pure sort of boxer stance. Uh, you know, just circumnavigating him, lateral movement. Problem is, in a way, he was moving around with his own jab. Fulton was not quick enough, not authoritative enough a puncher, didn't have the timing, basically was not able to win the battle with the jabs. So even though I picked a knockout, two, three rounds, that didn't happen. Definitely by the end of two, three rounds, it was over. Fulton did have moments in the fifth and had a particularly good seventh. But at that point, anyway, just seemed to be amping it up, walking him down and throwing more punches and bunches. And just trying a variety of different things to try and open Fulton up. But the thing is, anyway, he's not, if we use a MMA comparison for this, um, let's use Cheeto Vera. Cheeto Vera needs big moments to win rounds, okay? When he's not doing that, he doesn't fill the space enough with scoring work that allows him to be a consistent round winner. Okay? What Inoue does with his jab to fill that space is when he's not landing the big shots, and he lands them regularly, because his timing is how explosive and his hand speed and foot speed to close the, uh, to close the distance is, he is always doing that. But when he's not, when he's not having that success, whipping the right hand around the guard or coming underneath the uppercut or just barreling into someone with a big, wide, fast left hook, he's landing jabs consistently. He's landing jabs to the body. He would bait out Fulton's own jab with a low left hand to bait out the jab so he could encounter it with his own as he was coming in. He was utilising a check hook and pivoting out as he threw it. He was walking into Fulton with the left hook, the check left hook. Usually a check left hook, you would assume they're coming towards you. You move your weight onto your own back leg and drag the left hook over. Anyway, he was doing it as he was stepping forward and using that to pivot out around the side. Leading Fulton in, popping off, spinning out, regaining centre ring. Just a master, really. And that body jab consistently, what was great about it? He's using punches upstairs to divert Fulton's attention from the hooks coming down to the body, all the uppercuts coming from underneath. And he's using that body jab to bring Fulton's hands down steadily. So as the finishing sequence happens, it's the jab leading to the right hand upstairs that gets it going. The fighter I've used as a comparison for anyway in the past has always been Wilfredo Gomez. Not a perfect stylistic comparison, but in terms of how they approach the fight. Economic, uh, punches and bunches limited to twos and threes. You know, relying on accuracy and timing rather than shoe shining. Breaking the opponent down and being a really efficient finisher. And the economic movement. So if you look at them both, you'll see comparisons. They're not exact stylistic comparisons. It's not like watching, say, Muhammad Ali and Tyrell Biggs, where you can see the influence. But in terms of how they approach the fight, their attributes, and how they uh, deploy those attributes across the course of a fight to get to a certain point, i.e. with setups, uh, breaking opponents down, uh, utilising tactics that will pay dividends later on in the fight, using throwaways to gather reads all these things in a way Wilfredo Gomez I think are quite similar fighters and if you look at the records obviously Wilfredo Gomez's KO record was absolutely mind-blowing and based on his odd 30 odd fights before we fought Salvador Sanchez his record is definitely more impressive than in new ways in terms of competition faced and beaten but the reputation that Wilfredo Bazooka Gomez had 
in his prime is very similar to the reputation that now anyway is garnering now. And what's great is that more people are buying in now now anyway's for an American opponent. Because there's always the idea, it's not like he hasn't fought people from all over the place, but there's been a bit of hype behind this fight due to things that have taken place in the last week. That's got people thinking, now this guy's got a real challenge. He's moving up and weight to fight an undefeated American. Yeah, a guy with two bouts. This is going to be the test. And anyways, just blasted through forward. And what was really interesting is when they did have those collisions that brought them close together, i.e. when Inouye stepped into the check hook, it didn't quite work. Um, and they got into a tangle. Actually, Inouye was pretty strong. Was able to push Fulton off pretty quickly. One of the X factors for me was if Fulton could get on close, would he be able to use an overhook to wrestle Inouye around, take one of his weapons away and start chipping away on the inside? That is how he's going to win. Work his way into the on the inside, chip away in a way. Later on in the fight, tire him out by being the bigger man and having sustained a consistent amount of work throughout the fight. And anyway, actually shut him down on the inside as well. So Fulton, at least a level below. I'm vindicated in that regard. The sort of uh, technical ebb and flow that I predicted. And how Fulton would not be able to gain a foothold in the fight is somewhat correct. This is not a podcast where I have a victory lap, though. Because, quite frankly, for long-time listeners, they'll know that a lot of this podcast is me explaining where I went wrong. Why things weren't picked up. Why things went differently to how we anticipated. In this one, it worked out pretty nicely. And I'm happy because there's a lot of people picking Fulton that are picking him for reasons that I didn't quite understand. Um, saying, oh, yeah, he's a really good pure boxer. Well, is he? Is he a really good pure boxer? What, because he jabs and moves a bit? Good pure boxers can jab on the move whilst remaining defensively responsible. Good boxers that jab on the move don't typically get jabbed with to the extent that Fulton does. Good pure boxers don't really be that open to a right-hand counter over the jab don't really get corralled into corners as much as Fulton did. What he's trying to do is not necessarily what he was good at. Um, I thought his best performance was against Figueroa when he was good on the inside. That's what he showed. But again, that was a fighter who was willing to engage him on the inside, a fighter who walked him down, who gave him a chance to show off that def- uh, that offensive skill and somewhat defensive skill on the inside. And funnily enough, one of the things I said was I could see, if in a way did corner him, that once he got a flurry going, Fulton's hands tend to drop. And that's actually how that final finishing sequence played out. Anyway, throwing him in volume, Fulton comes down, he comes over his lead leg, and suddenly his head is protruding, he's not protecting himself. Now, it was a foregone conclusion at that point, but it's kind of what I was envisioning if that sort of thing would happen. I don't think people thought that anyway was going to beat Fulton on the inside, and I didn't, and he didn't. He just was able to hang there no one's going to say anyway beat him on the inside it's not Pernell Whitaker and Hudo Cesar Chavez I'm saying that when Fulton is backed up to the ropes in that position he's not that good defensively he's not moving practically he's not bending at the knees these are all things that he doesn't do under duress that was the point this idea that he's an all-terrain fighter is something I disagreed with I'm sorry for him it didn't work out seems a nice guy but overall, it's kind of good to see those things get exposed. It might make people think about the way they analyse fights. 
And what's also of particular interest to this actual fight is that the controversy about the hand wraps we saw prior to the bout. For those that are unaware, uh, Fulton's trainer said that he was not happy about Inoue's hands were being wrapped. There was evidence prior to the, uh, I think, first or second on air fight. I should know this, but I think it was the first on air fight where Inoue's hands weren't wrapped according to US guidelines. It's, it's permitted in Japan, but actually Nonito Dene's team were the team that uh, were, were those that had actually requested that particular type of hand wrapping to be allowed with the extra layer. In this fight, Fulton's team watched Inoue like a hawk while his hands were being wrapped. They filmed it, they signed off on it, and Inoue still battered Fulton and stopped him. So for us boxing fans, it's nice to know that regardless of what you try to do to now Inoue to throw him off his game, Regardless whether you think he's got stacked hand wraps or not, he will just take you out anyway. What next for now, you in a way? Then he's conquered every division he's fought in. He's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, he hasn't conquered every division he's fought in. I'm still not content with his reign at super flyweight, in which he missed the best fighters around. Even though I once ranked him as the tenth greatest super flyweight, don't anymore. He was um, definitely surpassed by those that uh, followed in his wake. Greater fighters, uh, pound for pound, arguably. Not today. I think anyway after this has proven himself one of the top three best pound for pound fighters in the world. Uh, there's another guy or guys that are looking to uh, leapfrog him this coming weekend. More on that in the next section of the podcast. But what next for him? Well, he's going to fight Marlon Tapales next, who's the Filipino champion who holds the other two bouts, the WBA and IBF. I'm a bit annoyed about that because even though... Uh, Marlon deserved to win the fight with Murajon Akhmadaliev. If Akhmadaliev had pulled his hand out of his ass and won that fight, I think we'd be talking about a much more interesting fight. Uh, he was a top amateur. He was undefeated. He is, uh, from Uzbekistan, he's under 30 years old. He hasn't got that... Um, well, he has now because he's lost. But at the point, uh, at the time, he was looking like, oh, this is a bit of a riddle for the division. He's a different kind of style to what anyway is for. He's a really sort of... Uh, dynamic southpaw would have been really interesting to see that fight. Maybe it will still happen. I think, anyway, unifies the bouts by the end of the year, wins all four bouts, fucks off the featherweight, and fights, hopefully, in house for the WBO featherweight title against Herbisi Ramirez. Now, I did a podcast the other week on Andy Cruz. I considered the lineage of great Cuban amateurs over the last 20 years to be uh, Yuri Okaskamboa. Hiloma Regendal, Robisa Ramirez, and now Andy Cruz. And Robisa Ramirez and me is, might have been the best of the bunch at the time, but he's had a weird run. He's had a really, really weird run. He went from being two-time Olympic gold medalist, and at that point, I think he was probably as respected amateur as ever been. He was about as respected, I think, as Lomachenko was turning pro. Towards the end of his amateur career, he seemed to be phoning it in. Lost a couple of fights in the World Series of Boxing. Once to, to Zoyrov, the Uzbek, uh, another Uzbek fighter, who actually, you know, excellent fighter in his own regard, uh, Olympic gold medalist. But I think, essentially, I think at that point, Ramirez had shut down. He had one eye on the pros. He did not want to be fighting for Cuba anymore for nothing. And I think that he was looking to find his find a way out. And I think he was getting by on pure talent. Now, I actually classed the World Series of Boxing, which are, you know, amateur bouts fought under pro rules for money as pro bouts. So he should have three pro losses. And you say three? He only lost two in the World Series, yes, because 
getting by on pure talent. He fought Adam Gonzalez in his first pro bout, got dropped early, looked absolutely appalling against a fairly uh, one-route uh, opponent. A fair play to Gonzalez because he really fucking turned up. He did not turn up as the opposition, he turned up the win. And he won well. And I think that was Ramirez finally finally learning, hey, this ain't the amateurs anymore, you can't fuck around, and you can't fuck around in the pros either because this is real. You can't get by on pure talent anymore. When you have a somewhat unmotivated Cuban expat, you send him to the other Cuban expat, Ishmael Salas, quality trainer, who shored up uh, Ramirez's defensive problems, got him back to somewhat of his form as an amateur. He later uh, avenged that loss to Gonzalez. He's now 12-1 and one as a pro, although you could say he's like, what, 24-3 and three based on the World Series of Boxing Belts as well. And now he's won the WBO uh, vacant title against Isaac Dogby in his last fight. Looked really good in that. And he just smashed uh, Satoshi Shimizu, who's an uh, Olympic bronze medalist. Never really a big fan of his. Weird, lanky guy. Um, not one of these guys sort of stays on the outside. He's just a weird, lanky guy. And uh, has, has smashed in the bits. And he just looks fantastic. He's with top rank. Always the example I use, and it was at Featherweight as well. I just spoke about Yuri Orcus Gamboa. Bob Arum, he famously let the Juan Manuel Lopez, who was coming up from Super Bantamweight, uh, super fight, and it was a super fight at the time. If you think that Inouye and Fulton's big, you do not believe how hyped everyone was for Yuri Orcus Gamboa versus Juan Manuel Lopez. It was huge. It was massive. It was massive. It wasn't Pacquiao Mayweather, but it was fucking huge. Way bigger in terms of excitement. It was probably about as... People are about as excited for that as they were for Arthur Bud Crawford and Errol Spence. And yeah, more on that again in a couple of minutes. But Bob Arum let that marinate too long. It fell apart. Juan Manuel Lopez had a particularly bad fight against uh, Rogers Matagua, who was a sort of unheralded gatekeeper type, batted him around the ring. Gamboa later splinted uh, Matagua pretty easy. Um, and then he lost to Salido, who Gamboa had already beat. So... The fight fell apart. Bob Arum's fault. Shouldn't let it wait that long. He was just trying to get as many paydays as possible out of two lads. Terrible, really. I hope he won't do it with uh, Ramirez and Inoue. Because Inoue would be ready to move up the featherweight. It's a great fight of the best amateur of his generation prior to leaving. Because Andy Cruz has obviously taken that mantle now. And one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters in the world. And arguably the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter below featherweight. So... Everything under where Ramirez has fought as a pro, in a way, is the man. I think you could definitely make a case that for the last era. Um, sorry, I'm talking best pound for pound fighter of the last era, not the best pound for pound fighter ever under featherweight. God, I would not be saying that, that's for sure. And I think you can make a case for Roman Gonzalez or Juan Francisco Estrada to be that. But anyway, he's got a case. He's certainly the best pound for pound fighter right now under featherweight. Um, and if he clears up a band of weight, he would have been unified at two weight classes and how titles at light flyweight and flyweight. So 108, uh, 115, super flyweight, did not fight at flyweight, 118 unified, 122 unified. And we'll be fighting Ramirez, who I imagine would have another defence by then. So had a couple defences at featherweight, two-time gold medalist, one of the best amateurs of all time. And he's just fought on Japanese TV, which bodes well. The Japanese will get to know him. They should put him on another defence. Maybe against another Japanese fighter on Inoue's next fight. That's what they should do. Build him up. You know, it's not a mega fight for everyone. Because I think some people will look at his record and go, lost in his debut. But for those that know, for those that got a memory longer than 10 minutes, 
Can you imagine a couple of years ago someone said, Rabicio Ramirez is going to turn pro and he's going to fight now in a way for the world title. You'd have just fucking spunk like Randy from South Park there and then. Like that famous gif. You'd have lost your fucking shit. It could happen. And Ramirez looks back on form. Against Shimitsu today, it looked fantastic. It's just these over-exaggerated feints and level changes and always setting you up, whipping shots over the top. He's got the defensive responsibility to be able to deal with anyway. He's be able to punch with anyway because he's so poised in the pocket. He'll be able to back anyway up because he's constantly feinting, offering him either hand, mixing up the head and body. He can bombard over the top or from underneath, as he saw today. Mix up the head and body. He's slick. He's quick. It's a great matchup. And I think if anyway's going to move up to featherweight, let's fucking make it. Bob, you know, Ramiro's never going to be a massive attraction, so you might as well put his belt on the line. If he beats anyway, he can become a bigger attraction. And if not, anyway, uh, fights a guy that people have somewhat heard of. But if nothing else, it will make for a wonderful fight in a technical perspective. It would be wonderful to watch. Um, I think he'll beat Tapalis pretty easily. And that's on the agenda. If not, fucking hell, let's bring you way over to the UK to fight Lee Wood. My God, be amazing. There's a guy that will punch with him. Wood might get splattered, but we know with Wood, before you can kill him, he's like a zombie. He'll keep coming back. The 2022 Combat Chronicles fight of the year, Lee Wood versus Michael Conlon, just shows how resilient he is. He's a strong featherweight. I'd love to see that as well. So from now in a ways future, the end of 2023 and beyond, to the immediate future, because if I didn't think that Inoue versus Fulton was a legitimate super fight, the one coming up this weekend definitely is. Errol Spence versus Terence Bud Crawford, Crawford champion at lightweight, unified champion at lightweight away. Now at lightweight, it's got a belt as well, but the other three belts are held by Errol Spence. So a proper super fight in one of boxing's marquee divisions. None of that junior super bastard shit. And for a proper super fight, you need a proper super guest. After this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right, so we're talking about all things Terence Crawford versus Errol Spence. And for the discussion, I had to get a heavy hitter on, so I've got the main man himself, managing director of Boxing News, Rob Tebbett. Rob, how's it going, mate? Carl, always a pleasure, mate. Thanks very much for having me. I'm doing well. Um, as I mentioned to you before, I'm a little bit tired, um, but the game is the game. How are you, my friend? Always good to catch up. Yeah, I'm right, mate. Uh, I think, you know, it's going to be a tiring week of content creation. We've got two big, huge fights coming up. Big, huge, you know, I'm out asleep myself, as you can tell, using every word in the dictionary. But we've got Inouye versus Fulton, which I know, I'm going to cover separately. I actually... I'm hyped for it, but I don't know about you, Rob, but for me, it doesn't feel quite as super fighty as Errol Spence and Terence Crawford. So that's the one we're going to focus on, mate. And first and foremost, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, you got any sort of sweeping predictions for the fight? Do you know who you think is going to win? Uh, for Spence Crawford? Mm. It's, I mean, it is, it, it's, it's a 50-50 fight, but it seems like everybody is picking Terence Crawford from my perspective. Mm. Um, over the years, I have leaned towards the natural size and the activity of Spence in a very close fight. But, and I don't want to sit on the fence, I will make a prediction. But the last couple of years, I think any any fan who's been plugged into what Errol Spence has been doing and the inactivity, the eye injuries, the car crashes, um, and in the same time, seeing where Terence Crawford is, Crawford seems to be in a wonderful place. He seems to be in a very old, detached, confident place. And that's a very difficult man to bet against. Um, but I have always leaned towards Spencer's activity, his fundamentals. But Crawford does have that X factor. He does have the, the natural freakish athleticism. And that is something that, the closer the fight has come, I have been swaying more towards Crawford. But because this has been one of those fights that's five, six, seven, however many years in the making, I suppose, or certainly five years in the making, I kind of feel like I've come too far to change my pick now. So I'm still kind of, through loyalty, if nothing else, on on the Errol Spence side of things. But it is a 50-50 fight, and... Anybody who tells me that Terence Crawford's going to win, I don't really have any argument. I don't really have any counter-argument to it. But through, I guess, sheer pig-headed ignorance and stubbornness, I'm still going for Errol Spence. But it's a pick that I've become less and less confident in, put it that way. 
what you're talking to me, mate. I love pig-headedness and stubbornness. So, you know, that's very much my thing too. Um, funnily enough, we'll talk about, say, some of the technical aspects in a minute, but the more tape study I've done leading into it and definitely of recent fights, like you just alluded to, I've actually become, I have become more certain that I'm going to be picking Terence Crawford in this fight. And I think it's just a craft thing, like you say, like that, that natural athleticism, but it gives him that ability to make those reads and those split-second decisions and it's his setups, his ways, always looking ahead, um, always drawing you into something you're not sure about. I just think he's got a, an added edge in craft. Now, we'll talk about Errol Spencer's craft in a second because he's not some lumbering oaf, as we all know. But I just think there's a little thing. You mentioned X Factor. I just think there's a little extra edge there for Crawford in terms of his ability to uh, do things that other people can't. And I think that might be uh, the difference. I think I don't see a stoppage. I'm going to make a prediction myself. I predict that we're going to have an absolute nightmare on social media come Sunday morning because I think you've got very clearly defined camps of fans. There are, of course, the people like us that are just looking for a, a good fight and are appreciative of both boxes. But I think the shit slinging you're going to see after what is a competitive fight between two elite fighters, it's just going to be a nightmare to sift through, basically. So we often get it. You know, we had it after, for a recent example, Lomachenko and Haney good competitive fight that became basically World War Three in the immediate aftermath. And for this one, I think it might be even worse, mate, to be honest with you. So my next question is, based on their fights against fighters of a similar ilk, and I don't think there's much examples here, how do you think either man is going to approach the belt? Yeah, I think you mentioned there about kind of, I mean, it's just going to take kind of a detour way to answer the question, I suppose, take the scenic route. But yeah, when when you kind of consider that they have boxed, they have boxed the same fighters, which is the very different stages of their careers. I feel uh, Kel Brook and Amir Khan being two obvious examples. Porter, sort of. I think um, the Porter that fought Spence wasn't massively dissimilar to the Porter that boxed Crawford. I don't think you can necessarily say the same thing about um, Errol Spence, not Amir Khan. Obviously, Spence didn't box. Uh, uh, not Errol Spence. Kel Brook, not Amir Khan, because Spence yeah. didn't. Rob, right. Rob, just for anyone listening, mate, it's 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, mate. So, you know. Yeah, and I was up till uh, three o'clock in the morning last night working, um, which is why I have these beautiful bags under the eyes. But anyway, yeah. um, they do have some mutual opponents, but they've boxed them at different stages of their career. And they are very different fighters. And the old adage of styles make fights, you know, as well as I do, as corny as it sounds sometimes, it is very much true. I think it's fair to say, regardless, I think, you know, a lot of talk is about Errol Spence's resume and comparing it to Crawford's. I am one of the people who, I guess, looks at Crawford's resume and still struggles to find that career-defining win. But right, having said right. that, I don't think you, I don't think you can look at Errol Spence's resume and you know it isn't a murderer's row. He does have a better better resume, but this is the fight that they both need. I think Spence. You mentioned it earlier. He is somewhat underrated as a technician yes because he's fundamentally you know quite solid but tactically he's he's pretty good in some instances but he's against somebody here where it's going to be put to the test it is that x factor it is i think a lot of talk is about crawford not facing somebody on spencer's level and obviously the same is true for spence he's never boxed somebody in crawford who is still prime unbeaten can switch has all the athleticism and the ring iq and the smarts that you were talking about and can set those traps and i watched um 
Kel Brook and Sean Porter talk about Spence in the ring and said that he wasn't the most naturally intelligent guy and Porter was able to manoeuvre him in some instances. And, you know, Porter's not somebody who we're really kind of, you know, we we think of when it comes to, a, you know, a smart fighter and somebody who's going to be able to kind of position you in the ring and, and move you around and, and what have you. So the fact that Porter's able to say that, I don't think that feels... Spence backers or shouldn't uh, fill Spence backers with a lot of confidence. As far as how the fight goes, I mean, we know how Crawford tends to approach fights early on. Um, he tends to take his time. He tends to have a couple of rounds to have a look and just start edging the feet into position and fainting and just looking for the gaps. And as you said earlier, thinking ahead and just seeing what sort of looks that he can give and, and the reactions that those looks get. Spence, on the other hand, is busy. He's busy from the opening bell to the final bell. He becomes more attritional as the fight comes on. But those early rounds, I do feel like Spence will get off to a good start. I do think Spence will win a couple of the earlier rounds. And then as Crawford starts to pick up the pace, I think the real fight will start around three and four. But Spence is, you know, he's a big fundamentally solid southpaw, throws loads of punches. Those guys are not easy to deal with. You look at Paul Williams and fighters of that ilk who are busy and can just occupy you. And Spence, I think, is better than people think with regards to layering his shots, touching, whip, whip, bang. And I think in the past, we've seen him kind of build up that head of steam. And in those middle rounds, that's when he starts to motor. The issue that he's got in this fight is he's against somebody who's going to expect that and is going to have a plan for it and is able to, to switch his game plan on the fly. And that's as we know, kind of what separates a good fighter from a great fighter and a world-class fighter is the ability to adapt and, and change the, the path of the fight on the fly. I don't think Crawford will... Don't me wrong, I don't think he's going to be giving up the early rounds, but I don't think he'll mind if he's able to get the kind of reactions and he's able to get the kind of... the scouting report that he's looking for in those early rounds to then pick up the pace as the fight goes. Um, usually for Spence, I always look at Spence in the second half of the fight and feel like that's going to be kind of where he comes into his own and he separates himself from his opposition. But in this instance, I kind of feel the longer the fight goes that I expect in seven, eight, nine, Crawford to have been warmed into the fight and then to start letting his big shots go, like from but probably slightly earlier than that. But I think seven, eight, nine is where we're going to see the best of Crawford. And then it's just as we get into 10 and then the championship rounds, what does he have left and can Spence go? And if he can go, can Crawford go with him? And I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. I think Spence will go as the fight goes on and the fight goes late and he'll try and finish strong. And Crawford, the competitive nature of him, and you know he's stopped Sean Porter late in the fight. I think he will go with him. So I'm expecting Spence to get off to a lead and I'm expecting him to... I expect him to try and get behind the jab early. I expect him to try and stifle Crawford, keep his distance, maybe try and make it a bit of a boring fight. I think it will be fairly tentative early on, but I don't think Crawford will necessarily mind that if he gets what he wants and he can start picking up the pace in those middle rounds. I think what you just mapped out there in terms of ebb and flow as well, we're looking forward to it. Because if that is probably the way it's going to go, and I think that that's why people are excited for this. Because you, as you mentioned, Resume-wise, Crawford's been fighting at a higher level for longer and has fought more guys that generally we've heard of. Errol Spence, due to the layoff, due to the out-of-ring uh, issues we've, we've both mentioned, he's only really been fighting top-level opposition for, you know, what, since Cal Brook, really. That was that was a step up at the time. Um, he's fought a couple of guys we've heard of before that, Chris Van Heerden and a couple of others, you know, people that we've heard of. But really, he's really been fighting top-level opposition since 
the Calbrook fight. And it's been sporadic. I think it's what I think I looked at. I think it's something like seven fights in six years. One of them was he's five title defenses in six years. There I think, go. yeah, so it's, he's he's I think he's now the second longest reigning welterweight champion, but with the fewest defenses out of anybody in the top five. That's quite so, the stat. That's quite the stat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and some of them were against, you know, fighters that were, I would say, somewhat past it. Someone like Danny Garcia, who, you know, is a name um, and still and still pretty decent, you know, but he's not, not 47. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he had success at 147, but he's mainly a, a light weight. And he said about Sean Porter, those fights between Spence and Crawford were seen as big, huge fights at the time. But for me, Porter, good analyst, good fighter, always gives it his all, no matter who's fighting. I never saw him as one of the elite level fighters. What's interesting as well, talk about the ebb and flow, is the sort of how they're both playing to each other. Spence, as you say, he's ostensibly, even given the amateur career, and I first became aware of Spence at the Olympics um, when I was scouting out, you know, the American Olympic team, back when you still cared about the American Olympic team. Sierra Spence, and you go, oh, yeah, this guy, he, he looks like something. And actually, Olympics and up to sort of Cal Brook fight seems quite sort of pedestrian, really, for me. I wasn't as blown away by him as I thought I was going to be. But I think that's sort of quite interesting because plays into him stylistically. He does build as a fight goes. Yeah, he does start off. He gets on the jab early, front foot pressure. He's constantly doubling, tripping the jab, putting you in positions. But actually, he does build to a crescendo. And that's when he really comes into his own. Stylistically, that plays into Crawford. He's going to give him a lot of data to work with. Crawford's going to spit that back out. And that's when he's going to have his big moments. So they sort of play off each other. And I think that's why it's an interesting dynamic. What's great as well is Spence really good using lead hand work, tie guys up on the inside, lots of hand fighting. Um, crafty in that regard. He's a real quality pressure fighter. I think, as I say, with the amateur background, I think people expect. And kind of go in with this preconceived notion that he's sort of boxer or a boxer puncher type, because that's what we expect from American welterweights. He's not. He really, he's an out-and-out pressure fighter. And he's very good at it. And the one really interesting dynamic in this fight is that Crawford's also really good at fighting hands, incorporates grappling into his training. You know, we've seen him uh, jokingly wrestle and stuff like that. He's a guy who's not going to be overwhelmed by the physicality of Errol Spence. So, I just think they play off each other in a really interesting way. And the ebb and flow that you describe is what I envision too. I think it's got potential to be a bit of a modern classic. And what's interesting too is neither of them have really fought much in the way of southpaws. Um, Cal Brook was a switch hitter. He, you know, primarily fought orthodox against in, in both bouts. You know, we've talked about common opponents. I mentioned Chris Van Heerden. Not what we'd um, consider a savvy southpaw quality fighter though he was in his day. Um, and Terence Crawford has fought a handful of what we would describe as top quality southpaws. I would say Felix uh, Diaz and uh, the terrible uh, African. Uh, yeah, there you go. So, you know, who I did like. Awkward, gangly, but you're not going to put him on the top level of southpaw. So really, like you say, for both guys, this is the top fighter either are going to fight in their careers more than likely it's the best fighter either have fought today and it's the best southpaw they fought today Crawford does favour southpaw stance against fellow southpaws which is why I brought it up so we are likely to see a close stance matchup but um, you know orthodox fighters have had um, no issues landing jabs on Spence from that stance either no issues sort of um, uh, landing to his body 
Porter had no issues at all. He did square up and actually uh, fight Southport on inside clinches with Spencer sort of throwing hell for leather. Your Denny Zugas, obviously not a stylistic comparison for Crawford, but certainly as a tall, lanky punch picker, you can make some sort of comparisons there. He had no issues getting around the uh, the, the back elbow of Spencer land to the body. and had no issues jabbing with him. So there is a path for Crawford from either stance, but I, I do think, based on tape study, that he will favour um, Southpaw, and I do think we'll see a close stance matchup. So next thing for me to think uh, to mention to you is, you know, how's it feeling from an insider's perspective, running boxing news, and, of course, all the online media that you guys do, are you hearing anything behind the scenes? Are you hearing from people you ask? Obviously, you said people seem to be leaning Crawford. Is there anyone that's made any bold pro- uh, sort of proclamations? Don't need to mention any names, but is there anything interesting as we edge closer to the fight week that you've heard that might be that might come into play? Well, sorry to be very boring, but no, not really. That's I'm fine. off to Vegas. I'm off to Vegas on Monday morning, so I will hopefully have a little bit more of an inside track when I get over there. But look, I don't think there really is. I think if, if somebody told me that one of the only thing that would surprise me or what I would consider a bold pick is if someone expected somebody to go and clean someone out early, I can't see that happening. There's too many, there's too much on the line. The stakes are too high. And I think they both respect each other and the kind of just the way that they naturally box. I can't see it happening. So even people who have picked Crawford to win by stoppage, I don't think that's a wild pick. Um, I like you think the fight will go the distance, but I don't. I can see routes to to Crawford, as we mentioned earlier, kind of assessing the landscape, getting that data, and then in the second half of the fight, finding the shot or finding the combination that ultimately gets the job done. I'd probably be, I'd be probably surprised if Spence was was able to to deliver any sort of stoppage, more so than Crawford. Um, I can see a route to Spence winning a decision kind of getting off to a quicker start than Crawford. Maybe they, you know, Crawford has a best of the the middle rounds and then Spence either motors in those last few rounds or it is close and he gets a close contentious decision. I'm going back to one of your first points. I completely agree. I think Sunday will be a bloodbath on Twitter. Um, I think anything that's even remotely competitive or close will have a controversial, controversial, Mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, outcome and it will be received as such. But no, I think... As I say, it's, it is a 50-50 fight. I think that I could sit here and make an argument, or I kind of have, for both guys. And I think that's what's made this such a fascinating fight. And I do see there being so many wrinkles to the fight and so many changes in momentum and tactics and you know adjusting to adjustments. I think that anything really, apart from those early round stoppages is in play here. Like you could see Spence grind him down. If we see a career best performance from Spence and, you know, he rehydrates well and he goes in and he's big and he's able to physically manhandle Crawford, which again, I, I agree with you. I can't necessarily see that. Crawford is very physically strong. It's kind of got that, that very strong core strength and that natural athleticism where I think he'll be able to hold his own on the inside. I don't think that'll be his game plan to bang it out with Spence, but you know, he, I think he's he's more than capable of holding his own in there. But you could see Spence kind of, well, in a kind of fictitious scenario, being busy and attritional and potentially grinding him down late in the fight. So I think pretty much every outcome is in play. It's going to be interesting to see how Spence is at the weight. I think we are still in the the kind of danger zone i guess of him making the weight has he stayed at the weight just to bait this fight because it is a career defining fight for both men i don't think he's gonna really know that until probably wednesday of fight week that's when the real weight cut will start 
I'd imagine he'll be nil by mouth and flushing out fluids from the Wednesday onwards, or certainly not, if not the Wednesday, then certainly Thursday from the press conference onwards. And then we don't know. Um, I think Bud has now grown into being a, a fully fledged welterweight, um, which I think at the start of his reign at welterweight and the start of like from Jeff Horn onwards, I think the Jeff Horn fight, he still looked a little not underdeveloped, but I still think he looked a little bit like a guy who would come up through the weights. Whereas I think now he does look, he has that menace and that presence of somebody who's settled into the weight. So I think that's one of the things that I'm most looking forward to. And I think with any big fight, it's always a, it's always an interesting thing to see when you've got one guy, especially in Spence, who is tight at the weight and is big for the weight, how he's going to, how he's going to respond to the weight cut. So that's the one thing that I will be going out and definitely trying to find out and see if there's any inside track. Because I do think that if Spence is going to win the fight, he needs to have a strong finish. Yeah, he's got a five-round engine, 100%. Yeah, he's going to have to. Because those middle rounds, Crawford's going to have success because he's too good a fighter not to. And like you've said, the kind of flip side, I guess, to Spence being busy and throwing 70, 80 punches around is that you do leave yourself open. You do leave yourself open to counters coming back. And, you know, you mentioned Crawford deciphering the data and spitting it back at him. So that's why I, I could see also a scenario where Spence is somewhat negative and cagey, um, you know, obviously completely different fighters, but he was like that really with Mikey Garcia, where he was kind of almost sort of went out of his way to make it a dull affair, really, in some instances. Um, Against the goal, so it wouldn't really offer him much back. No, exactly. So, but one of the Crawford's kind of, I guess, kryptonite for me, and we saw it to a degree in the Sean Porter fight, is somebody who can win rounds. We've got Canelo, Javante Davis is another one, and Crawford who have this kind of apex predator on the front foot stalking, looking for the big counters. But if you don't give it to them, then they naturally will lose rounds. We saw it with Canelo against Caleb Plant, seen it with Javante Davis against Mario Barrios and well, lots of other fighters where he's been, he gives away rounds in a way that Terence Crawford doesn't, but it is still a case of if he doesn't get you, then naturally he's going to be giving up rounds on the cards. So I think Spence will be mindful of that. And Derek James will be mindful of that and getting those rounds banked early on and leaving enough for a big push at the end. I think Spence will be thinking, if I can win three of the first four rounds and three of the last four rounds, then I only need one in, one of the last four, and I've got it. And I think if it is close, look, he is the A-side in this fight, and that may not sit well with people, but it is true. We know mm. that this is a business. There is a two-way rematch clause. We all love a bit of controversy. If it's close, you know... A kind of, I guess, history and everything that we know about sport will tell us that Spence is likely to get it as the A-side of the promotion, the PBC star, the house fighter. Um, so I think yeah, I've kind of rambled around various different um, potentials. Cool, you're in, mate. We've got to do it. <laughs> but um, do it. yeah, in a lo- long story short, I haven't heard much, but nothing that I could hear, I think, at this point, unless somebody told me, look, Spence has been really... You know, he's been really struggling at the weight and he got buzzed in the gym and it came from like a you know a good source, then I would probably pay attention to it. But outside of that, I think over the years we've all gone through all of these various scenarios and what ifs and how and da 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 that we all kind of have exhausted every potential outcome. And and other than an early stoppage, as I said, I wouldn't really be surprised with anything. You raise an interesting point now. I didn't really consider that. 
tight the weight, needing a strong finish, Spence might not come out as he usually does. He might actually be a bit negative. And in that case, it's a battle with the jabs. They've both got good jabs. Um, Crawford, I'd say more accurate. I'd say Spence more busy. That will be interesting. That'll be interesting. Not what we're really, really expecting. I am I am expecting Spence to come out because I think that's just who he is. Um, the Garcia fight, good comparison, really good example. That was a weird one. I have always wondered if there was, and I'm not one of these idiots who cries fix at everything, you know that, but I have always wondered if there was a kind of, you know, we're doing this for the money sort of agreement. You know, he's much smaller than you kind of thing. Or a Spence just knowing how much smaller he was just went, I'll just sort of go for the motions. Yeah, I don't need to get too busy. Um, it did seem sort of out of character, that performance. We talk about the Cal Brook fight as well. I mean, Cal Brook, I think people forget, he had success earlier against Errol Spence. And if he had not had his physicality ripped away from him in that, what I consider a folly against Golovkin. I think most people do. I think we did at the time, but even now it looks particularly uh, disastrous matchmaking and dangerous matchmaking. I wonder if he would have been able to sustain it. I don't think Cal Brooks has ever been a fighter who deals with adversity too well, but certainly I don't think his face would have got broken in that way. And we might've seen a different fight, but the fact he had so much success early, just punch picking and, and jabbing with Spence makes me think that if Spence doesn't get a foothold early, I think Bud might just pick him apart. So if we're expecting Bud to have uh, good middle rounds and then the late rounds to be really competitive, I think Spence does need to guarantee he takes those early rounds. And I'm not sure he will do boxing his way in. I think, you know, well, he'll box his way in as he always does. But I think if he doesn't punctuate that with big moments. And that's the thing that he spoke about Bud Crawford that's really interesting about round stealing and whatnot. He has big moments. Spence might land, outland him in a round, but those uppercuts coming front or, or the, the hooks round the guard, they really do snap your head back. And that's how Bud Crawford can nick rounds when he's maybe not being as busy. But it's just a really interesting fight. I just think it's the big one this week. I think we're all excited from a boxing perspective. From an all-round combat sports perspective, it's really exciting because there's loads going on in, in MMA as well. It's a really big week. I know um, Errol Spence... Uh, said no one's going to be paying attention to Bellator. But there are some weirdos that will be because uh, it's a big card out in Japan and it's loads of weird freak show fights. And, you know, you know the home of combat sports is, is Japan, in my opinion. And there's just loads happening there this week. So f- for the weirdos, there's plenty going on. But I do think that Crawford Spence is the main attraction and it's that sort of shit that brings us together. So final thoughts, let's make a final prediction. We've gone around the houses We've done all sorts. I'm going to go. And I'll tell you what, you've, I think you've convinced me somewhat based on the on the promotional angle. Just a quick one though about that. Bud Crawford, he's signed with PBC now, or is he essentially free agent mercenary? Or has he got a deal with PBC? He's got a two-fight deal, but I think the second fight of the deal, it will be the rematch. It's a two-way rematch clause. So whoever, if, if the loser decides to enforce it, then the other guy has to come along. So he has a two-fight deal with PBC. So he's not a he's not a lone wolf. But I mean, it's it's very similar. Oh, kind of convinces me now though that he might win this one and they might keep the bouncing house on the rematch. Um, but you make you make a really good point. They're going to want to guarantee a, a rematch because it's good business. I think if it's tight and close, I could I could see Spence winning the decision if we take that sort of. You know, what goes part and parcel of boxing out of it, which we shouldn't because, you know, we have to second guess ourselves. We have to look at the judges that are lined up. If we see Adelaide Bird, we know there's going to be two 115, 113s and then a 120, 108. 
we have to take that into consideration. But if we don't, if we just go on an ebb and flow boxing basis, I'll go Terence Crawford by 12th round stoppage, 11th round stoppage. Let's go, let's go, let's be fucking bold. Let, let, let's, let's take the judges out of the, out of the equation entirely and say that Crawford puts it together late. I mean, because let's be honest, it's not like your Denny Ugas didn't hurt Spence. People, the commentary team didn't seem to notice the the original right hand that looked somewhat innocuous that took his legs from him. It wasn't just the fact that he got caught on the break. He was fucking hurt in that fight. And I can see all that. Look, what you've mentioned, you've convinced me both ways. If it goes the, decision, the distance, Spence might get it. But the weight cut, the car crash, the eye injury, the, the tough fights he had, that last fight he had, which was tough. He hasn't fought for over a year. Or coming up to it. Yeah, go on, fuck it. Let's go bold. I'll go Terence Crawford to get him out of there late. I think that he's gonna be able to sense a pattern, he's gonna see patterns, get his big shots off, and he's gonna as Spence tries to get back into it late, he will overextend. He will give Crawford too many opportunities. He can hit it with something coming from underneath, up the cut, take him out. He's no David Avenesian, but I quite like David Avenesian, so I was really impressed by that performance. I think Shinado's uh, yeah. liked him. And I think that really showed Crawford's strengths and setups. Let's go bold. Crawford, 11th round, TKO. Okay, well, I hope you're right. But I hope there is a late a late drama in the fight one way or the other. I think it'd be great if it's... And I do see there being a lot of changes of momentum in the fight. I do expect Spence to have the early rounds. I expect Bud to come into it in those middle rounds, potentially hurt Spence. And then I think it will all be down to... I don't like to say it because it's it's nonsense, but who really wants it in those last few rounds? Generally speaking, I, I hate to say stuff like that because, of course, they both want it. But you've got two guys who are at the very, very top of their game. And I think it will be close right up until the end of the fight, whether the fights... I, I can't really see a one-sided whooping and then a stoppage. I think they're two good fighters and they're too good for it to be a one-sided affair. And also their natural kind of styles and the way that they approach fights. Crawford is not, he doesn't, you know, very rarely will come out and rubber stamp things from round one and then just blow someone away. He will kind of have his moments where he's allowing fighters to come onto him just so he can pick his shots. I'm going to, I've got to stay with it because I've been saying it for certainly sort of loud and proud for three years. And then the last couple of years, probably a little bit less loud and a little bit less proud about Spence. But I'm going to go for Spence by... Close, competitive, potentially controversial decision. I think that he will pick up some of those early rounds. And I think the last few rounds will be close. And there may be a case of him being hurt late on and having to see it out. And then still potentially on some people's cards losing the fight, but getting a very close competitive and potentially controversial decision. Um, I'm not going to upset our mate Chris Williamson and say it's going to be a split decision, but I think it's going to be close. And I think, I say, I think, I don't know whether, like, I don't have a horse in a race. It doesn't bother me who wins or not. But I think over the years, having kind of one, one pick, but now you've just mentioned there running through the inactivity, the accidents, the eye injury, all of that, all of the signs are there for a Crawford win, I think. But these fights have a wonderful way sometimes of just, bringing something out of the truly elite fighters. And these are two of the best fighters in the world and certainly the best two welterweights in the world. I know Jaron Ennis might have something to say about that, but at the minute he can't, he can't gate crash the top two. So I'm going to go for Spence 
but <laughs> and I don't like to caveat picks and I don't like to sit on the fence. I would not be surprised at all. And I don't think anyone can be surprised. If if Spence was to win, I think people picking Crawford, I think it shouldn't be a huge surprise. No matter how good he is and no matter everything that's happened, it is still an elite, unbeaten, big, strong, busy welterweight. So I'm going to go for Errol Spence by very, very, very close decision. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's like particularly the last couple of months, I've not really had as much focus on boxing, the traditional sort of boxing angle as I as I have in the past. And this is one that's kind of woke me up from my, I guess, administrative coma that I've been in for the last three months, going through um, various PLs and projections and spreadsheets and stuff. Um, and I have now kind of awoken from that, and I'm really looking forward to it next week. I think it's going to be. I think, like you, it's going to be a great fight. I think it will be one of the fights of the years and I don't really see how how it lets us down. I mean, I, I may live to regret that, but I think the style, everything that's on the line and where they are in their careers now, you've got Crawford who's kind of, this is his moment now. He's a three-year world champion. He's very accomplished on paper, but this is his win. This is his legacy win. Um, and for Spence, this is his opportunity to to show that despite all of the, that adversity that he's had in his career, that he's able to, uh, you know, throw in people's faces. I think the, the, the narrative that is kind of accepted, I suppose, is that maybe over the years, Crawford wanted this fight more than Spence. I mean, I don't subscribe to that because I don't know the ins and outs. But I'm sure that Spence would like to to kind of stick that up, people, if he's able to get the win and show people that he's the number one welterweight in the world. And that might just bring something out of him that we haven't seen yet. But I'm very, very excited by it, as I'm sure you are. And I think we're going to get a great fight. We're not going to be staying up, mate. Talk about getting your zest back. I know you didn't get into boxing coverage because you like spreadsheets and pie charts. You got into it because you like boxing and it's just so happened that it's turned out for you that you're now in the spreadsheets and pie charts. But... um. For me, you know, we, we joked before recording started, but, you know, I'm in my mid, mid to late 30s now. You know, I haven't got the, I hate to use the same word, but I haven't got the zest that I used to have. I'm not battling out on the forums anymore. This is the kind of fight that's going to get me to stay up. You mentioned our, our mate Chris Williams, and also you know him from, from, from you know, boxing coverage. I know him from the forums back in the day. I think what he particularly hates when people say they scored a fight, a split decision. I absolutely <laughs> can see a split decision in this fight. It's a fine prediction, mate. As we say, it's going to be what I reckon you can have two cards, a 115, maybe a 114, and then you're going to have a, something egregious. It always happens in big fights. But for those yeah. that are listening to this podcast that follow me, maybe for MMA coverage, kickboxing coverage, Muay Thai, maybe they're getting swept up with the big fight fever, just as we are, but they're not necessarily boxing fans. They're not going to be aware of your work. They're not going to be aware of the prestigious history of boxing news. Um, which historians like myself, we're still reading old issues of, as it was called then boxing to get the skinny on the fights from over a hundred years ago where can people find you where can people find you your, your content uh for the for the id boxing conglomerate yeah so we're um we're obviously boxing news available online boxing news online you can get your subscription there or you know some retailers will have them depending on where you live and where you can pick it up you can walk down to your local WH Smith and pick up uh, Boxing News Mag. We've got uh, the Mag coming next week with an exclusive interview with Errol Spence. Um, we also have 
followers across social media. I think a big part of the the kind of the new era of boxing news is, of course, a bit more digital and social content, which is kind of my background. Um, but just on the old archive, we are we are working on a few bits on the archive at the minute that should um, excite historians like yourself um, looking to digitize the whole back. Uh, archive that we have but with 114 years of archive it's uh it's uh, it's not a job that can be done overnight but yeah look out for it you know we're taking a full team over there we've got editorial we'll have video we'll we'll have pretty much everything that you could want so we're looking to roll out the big guns and and give this fight the the coverage that it deserves because we're all excited by it and hopefully we get what we're we're expecting which is a great fight and you can catch all of the latest and greatest coverage of Spence Crawford on Boxing News. Once in a generation, the time has come. A fight makes history. It's champion versus champion. Before anyone steps in the ring, Errol Spence Jr. Terence Crawford. The most anticipated fight of the decade is here. Undefeated, undisputed, unprecedented. Spence versus Crawford for the undisputed world title, Saturday, July 29th, live on pay-per-view. Thanks to Rob Tebbett there. And you know what else is going on pay-per-view? My breakdown of the Spence Crawford fight, only on the Combat Chronicles Patreon. That address again, www.patreon.com slash Combat Chronicles. You get the breakdown, you get the preview on this feed, you get the post-fight analysis on that feed. I gave you in a way, Fulton. Come on now. What else are you going to get on the Patreon this week? Well, obviously, we've got a UFC card. We've got the aforementioned Bellator versus Rising card. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to fit that in this week. Um, Bellator Rising, watching it, I mean, because it's going to stray into uh, Sunday morning. And as I say, I'm an old bastard, a fat fucker as well, and I get tired easy. So, I'm probably going to catch up with UFC at some point Sunday. Um, try and Patreon pod about that too. At least, you know, what tickles my fancy. Definitely the main fights on the card. Uh, poor A. Gaethje rematch. Uh, and Alex Pereira versus Jan Blachowicz. Probably some more as well. But obviously, the main attraction, as I said throughout this episode, this week is a boxing week. So if you want to hear my thoughts on Spence Crawford and whatever else I fancy talking about, head on over to the Patreon. That's that website again, www.patreon.com slash Combat Chronicles. A couple of bucks a month, you get access to the whole back catalogue. Uh, audio documentary such as the recently released How to Catch a Spider, which is a one-hour-long audio documentary all about Chris Weidman versus Anderson Silver 1, the upcoming Guide to Pride 1, other audio documentaries, other bonus podcasts, breakdown fights, preview fights, all sorts of stuff on there, whatever I fancy chucking out, basically. Scans of magazines, scans of on-site programmes from MMA about two decades ago. It's just all sorts of weird and wonderful shit on there. So if you like what you heard on this episode, be sure to check that out. If you liked listening to me, be sure to give this a five-star rating and a review because that actually does help the main free podcast feed be more visible to others. If you like me, hit me up on Twitter at CombatCR. If you like me even more, you can find me on Instagram at CombatChroniclesPod and that's the same uh, account that I've got over on Freds, which is pretty much dead, isn't it? And I'll tell you what, I told you to follow me on Twitter. It's X now. We'll see how much longer for, eh? But I'll tell you what's not going to go on for much longer, and that's this episode. So, as I say, hit me up on the socials, hit me up on Patreon, brace yourself for more exclusive content. If you're a cheapo, wait for a couple of weeks, and I'll be back on this feed. Until next time, thanks for listening, thanks for your support, really appreciate it. Peace out. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.